death we earn. Eternal life is pure grace. And how does it become ours? It becomes ours if we are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series, Whose Slave Are You? Do you know how many religions there are in the world today? What about all of the self-help books, gurus, life coaches, and programs that claim to have the secret to a successful and happy life? Many claim to be the path to enlightenment, salvation, wholeness, or heaven. But Jesus himself says there are only two paths leading in opposite directions, and those two divergent paths eventually arrive at two completely opposite destinations. But where do these two paths lead, and how do you know which path you're on? That's exactly what Tom will look at today as he presents an important lesson regarding your relationship to sin. Open your Bible as we join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Romans chapter 6. If you were to ask the average person on this planet about man's spiritual journey, you would get uh, a lot of different answers. But I think of the 7 billion people who inhabit this planet, the most common answer would go something like this. Well, you see, the world's great religions really are just different paths to the same place. Each of them starts at a different trailhead, and each takes its own unique path up the mountain. But, but eventually, when life is over and the story is told, all of the world's religions essentially end up at the same summit of the same great mountain we're all ultimately pursuing the same God. And we end up, whether it's described as heaven or paradise or nirvana, those terms are essentially different ways of describing the same place and the same destiny. That, I think, is the most common view of fallen mankind on this planet. But understand this, that was not Jesus of Nazareth's view. In the conclusion of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord drew a shockingly different picture of man's spiritual journey. He essentially said, listen, forget the illustration of a mountain surrounded by countless trailheads, all leading to the same summit, leading ultimately to God. Instead, Jesus said, no, it's not like that at all. All religions, all paths start in just one of two places. He said there are only two gates. There's the wide gate. By describing it as wide, Jesus was in essence saying it's easy to get on it. In fact, you don't have to do anything to get on the wide, uh, go through the wide gate. You've already gone through it just by virtue of being a fallen human being. But you can also go through the wide gate by, by pursuing the false religions on this planet, by, su- by pursuing the, the false ideologies and philosophies of man. You can go through the wide gate by claiming some aberrant view of the Christian faith, the true knowledge of God. You can also go through the wide gate by professing falsely the true faith that is revealed in Scripture. 
So there are a lot of different ways to go through the wide gate. But Jesus said there's only one other gate, and it's the narrow gate. Why does he describe it as narrow? He describes it as narrow because it's hard to find. In fact, he says, few there be that find it. Why is that? Among all the noise and the clutter of the false religion saying, here's the way, here's the gate, it's really hard to find the narrow gate. It's also hard to fit through because you can't go through it with anyone else. You can't go through the gate that leads to life with your parents or your grandparents. You can't sort of fit through with other people's faith, nor can you take any baggage through it. You can't take your own works, your own effort, your own righteousness. It's a narrow gate. In fact, it's so narrow that it's a one person, Jesus Christ. He says, I am the door. That's it. Every other gate leads to a different road. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that from those two gates, there are two paths leading in opposite directions, and those two divergent paths eventually arrive at two completely opposite destinations. That's exactly the point that Paul makes in our text this morning. Now, let me remind you of the theme of this paragraph that we're studying, a paragraph that begins in verse 15 of Romans 6 and runs down through verse 23. Essentially, Paul says this, true Christians are no longer slaves of sin, but have instead become slaves of God, and therefore our lives look entirely different. And because of this, because of this change, you need to understand that our relationship to sin, every person's relationship to sin, matters. In fact, as we began to see last week in verses 20 to 23, Paul says there are eternal consequences of our relationship to sin. Let's read this section again, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. You follow along. Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, as we noted last time, this paragraph is, is telling us, listen, you are either serving sin or you are serving God. There's no middle ground. Sin or God. And you are either on the path of sin or you are on the path of righteousness. And if you look carefully at your life, you can tell which path you're on. If your life is marked by increasing obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ and His Word, growing sanctification, growing likeness to Jesus Christ, then you are on the path of righteousness. If your life, on the other hand, is marked by increasing obedience to the demands of sin, increasing patterns of sin in your life, then you are on the path of sin. And which path you're on tells you which gate you entered. And discovering which road you're on now will tell you your ultimate destiny. Now, as we saw last time, 
Paul compares these two ways or these two roads, but he does so by describing them as two kinds of slavery. He's really still outlining these two basic realities, two gates, two paths, two destinies, but he does so under the the comparison of two kinds of slavery, starting, as we noted last week, with the slavery that leads to death in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says it's slavery to sin. That's what this is about. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Before Christ, you were a slave of sin. And that slavery brought absolutely no benefit. Notice verse 21, therefore what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? Paul doesn't give an answer. Why? Because there is no answer. The benefit was absolutely nothing. And that slavery ends in eternal death. Verse 21 says, for the outcome, literally the Greek word is the end, the end of that path is death. The second kind of slavery in verse 22 is the slavery that leads to life. This is the other path. This path is entered by the narrow gate. Notice, this slavery is slavery to God. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. And it brings a lot of benefits, but the benefit that Paul mentions here in the context is sanctification. If you've really been saved, if you've really been made a slave of God, then God does what He promises to do in the new covenant. He causes you to walk in His ways. There is sanctification. You are having that reality. And then this path ends in eternal life, verse 22. And the outcome, the end of this slavery, is eternal life. Those are the two slaveries. Now today we come to one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, Romans 6.23. You probably, if you've been a Christian any time at all, you memorize this verse. It's famous in the history of the church. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, speaking of Romans 6.23, says it is, quote, a Christian proverb, a golden sentence, a divine statement of truth worthy to be written across the sky. Here you have both the essence of the gospel and a statement of that misery from which the gospel delivers all who believe. If you've been alive any time at all, you know that this verse is part of what was once called the Romans Road. Romans Road was just a series of verses from the book of Romans strung together that were often used to share the gospel. Early in my life, this was a path I followed. But this verse has a context, and taken in its context, this verse explains, and this is what I want you to see this morning, verse 23 explains the ultimate reasons behind these two eternal destinations. Verse 23 is a kind of summary. It's a summary of verses 20 to 22 that we that we looked at last time. It is also a climax of the entire paragraph. So let's look again at this famous verse, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now before we get into this verse in detail, let me just make a couple of general observations. They're obvious 
but not so obvious to many people. First of all, it's clear from this verse that there are two eternal destinations. There really are two eternal destinations. In other words, there is no annihilation of the soul. Man doesn't cease to exist at death. Jesus himself affirmed the reality of an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. So either Jesus was wrong or he was right, but the reality that he said such a thing cannot be questioned. Secondly, we can make the general observation that there are only two eternal destinations. There's no purgatory, there's no other place. No, there, there's, there are these two destinations, eternal death or eternal life. A third observation brings this much closer to home. And, and I don't think we think about this enough, but let me put it as directly as I can as I've put it to myself this week. It may be for you in 70 years, or it may be, God forbid, in 70 seconds, but the moment your body dies, the moment your heart stops, the moment that body you inhabit stops, the real you who lives in that body will awaken in one of those two destinations. Now let that sink into your soul for a moment. This is not legend. This is not pretense. This is reality. The moment your body stops functioning, the real you will awaken in one of these two eternal destinations. It's so important that we make sure we know which of those destinations is ours. Now, I want you to notice, as we begin to look at verse 23, I want you to notice how Paul connects this verse with what came before it. Notice he begins verse 23 with that little word, for. In other words, this verse is Paul's explanation of why one kind of slavery ends at eternal death and the other ends at eternal life. The other thing I want you to notice is the contrast, and this is the key to the verse. Notice the key contrast is between wages on the one hand, and wages are what? They're earned. And a free gift on the other hand, and what distinguishes a free gift? It's received. Earned, received. Earned, received. How do people end up in one of these two eternal destinations? It's either earned or it's received. Let's look at it more carefully. First of all, I want you to notice the first half of the verse. And let's summarize it this way. All people, everyone, earns death as a payment for their sins. All, you, me, everyone, earns death as a payment for their sins. Verse 23 begins, For the wages of sin is death. In the Greek text, it's even simpler. There's not even a verb. It just says, for the wages of sin, death. For the wages of sin, death. We were all born in the first half of verse 23. In fact, let me put it this way. If you do absolutely nothing, you will spend the rest of your life in the first half of verse 23 and your eternity as well. This is just the reality for everyone. Now, notice what Paul says. The Greek word translated wages originally for, referred to a soldier's rations or a, a soldier's pay. As Greek continued to develop by the first century, 
This word spoke generally of all wages, all pay, all compensation. But, but I think here in context, Paul is using it in a very specific way. You see, the picture in this paragraph is of a slave master paying an allowance to his slaves. And if sin is your master, then the allowance you get is death. That's what he pays. That's what you can expect. Now, notice Paul refers to the wages of sin, singular. He's using this word sin in a collective sense, speaking of of sin in the general reality that we are sinners. It's like when we say, what do you get paid for your work? Work is used in a collective sense. It means all those hours that you contribute to your work, you get paid for it, but work is used collectively. The same thing here. The wages of sin is death. The wages collectively for our sin is death. But technically, the rest of Scripture makes it clear that we are not judged merely collectively for our sins, but rather we are judged for our sins individually, for individual sins, for sins, plural. Go back to chapter 1 and notice verse 32. Here Paul is talking about pagans. He's talking about people who, who don't even claim to worship the true God who've made up their own gods. And he says in verse 32, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice, notice this, such things, plural. What's he talking about? Well, if you go back to verse 28 and you read down through verse 31, there's, an, there's this lengthy list of sins. And, and Paul says, those who commit these sins, plural, are worthy of death. Then in chapter 2, he comes to the religious, and specifically those like the Jews in the first century who claimed to worship the true God but didn't really know him. Also, it could be people who attached to the Christian church but weren't really Christians. So, people who claim to worship the true God but really don't know him. And he says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice, again, notice the plural, such things sins, plural. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things? In other words, when religious people look at pagans and go, can you believe they do that? But then we do the same things, commit the same sins, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? So the judgment of God, the wages of of sin, isn't just on sin in the collective sense, it's on our individual sins. And notice verse 6 of chapter 2, God will render to each person, at the judgment is the context, according to what? His deeds, plural, individual sins. That's why in Revelation 20, you have a picture at the judgment of the books being opened, the record of human lives being opened, and people are judged according to their deeds, plural. The wages of sin is death. We could also say it's equally true, the wages of sins is death. And look again at what we get paid for the sin or for sins. The wages of sin is death. Sin or sins, either way you want to say it, they deserve death. 
God's justice demands death for our crimes. Now, by using the word wages here, Paul is making a really important point. He's saying sin demands our death just as our work demands that we get paid. Imagine for a moment that you were to work a month for your employer and he didn't pay you. Would that be just? No, of course it wouldn't be just. You earned that pay. There was an agreement and you deserve to be paid that amount that was promised you. There's justice involved in that. That's Paul's point. Just as it would be unjust not to pay a worker what he earned, it would be unjust for God not to pay us what our sins have earned. On the fringes of Christianity, I won't say evangelical Christianity, it's really more liberal Christianity, but unfortunately there are those who call themselves evangelicals who would say this. There's a, there's a growing concern with saying that Jesus suffered the justice of God for sinners on the cross. They don't want to say that. They want God just to forgive. God can just wave his hand and forgive. Listen, Paul is saying if God just waves his hand and forgives without his justice being met, then God is what? Unjust. What would you think of a human judge who knew that the defendant was guilty and yet just decided to forgive him? You'd say that's not just. The same thing is true for God. But God is just, and death has always been what God has paid for sins. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, and you remember in verse 17, he says to Adam, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, what? You will surely die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, All souls are mine, God says. And the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul who sins will die. Death. This is the just payment for sins. Now sometimes death can refer to physical death. It does that back in chapter 5 when, when Paul says, through Adam's sin, physical death came upon all men. Other times this word death can be used of spiritual death, like Ephesians 2, verse 1, where Paul says that in our sins we were dead spiritually to God. But I don't think either of those are meant primarily here, because notice in verse 23, Paul compares and contrasts two final destinations. He's looking into the future, and he contrasts this death, whatever it is, with eternal life. So here, death, in verse 23, means eternal death. It's what John the Apostle calls in Revelation 20, the second death, which is the lake of fire. It is eternal punishment. This is simply an unchangeable law of God's moral universe. The wages of sin is death. It's required of God's justice. The soul that sins will die spiritually, physically, and eternally. The wages of sin is death. Now, now here is where a lot of people who aren't Christians get confused, and even those who profess to be Christian. They get confused here because they begin to think and reason on their own, and, and they think like this. Okay, so the wages of sin is death. How many sins 
does it take to earn eternal punishment? And then they think, okay, well, is it possible that, yes, I'm a sinner, I know I sin, but is it possible that if I also do good things and I do enough good things that God will cancel out my sin and the wages that my sin has earned? This is an utter misunderstanding of God's justice. This is not who God is. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his current series, Whose Slave Are You? Tom will bring you part 10 on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.